to another episode of Out of Bounds, brought to you by F News Magazine. I am one of your co-hosts, Ben Kim, Wheaties Box, Pappleham. Ooh, that's a good nickname. I'm Catherine Betray. You can just call me KP this week. How about that? Easy. I'm still, I'm still Aiden Bryant. <laughs> yeah. Still the OG. Still, yeah, well, yeah. Let's just go with that for this week. <laughs> um, this week we have a kind of a kind of a heavy topic for everyone. It's about the NFL and, um, you know, in light of the recent Deshaun Watson allegations, um, the 22, now 21 allegations that have been filed against him, um, it got us, all three of us, thinking a lot about, you know, the perception of the NFL being way more violent and way more prone to these domestic violent cases um, than other sports. And, we wanted to kind of research that and kind of try to figure out where does that come from, right? Um, and so just a few trigger warnings beforehand, there are a lot of cases, obviously by the nature of this topic that are um, dealing with violence, dealing with um, uh, trauma. Uh, so if you don't feel comfortable listening to that, feel more than welcome to uh, tune in next week or watch a different, listen to a different episode. Um, so as we were talking about this, I think a few weeks ago, and as I was researching it, I think I ran into like this issue of trying to solve the world's problems in one episode where I was like asking questions of, like, is there a problem in the NFL? Is there a bigger problem in the NFL compared to other sports? Like, what can we as fans or athletes do, uh, family members of athletes do? And, and I think, um, you know, part of that line of questioning was, was a bad place for me to start with because I, I think it, it was ignoring um, just very basic research criteria and, and, and base rules of just figure out what's out there, what you can find, and just come back with observations. And so I think, you know, for this episode, we're not trying to um, solve anything in the NFL. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure who can, uh, but bring to light issues, I think, that we think are really important uh, for fans and, and casual fans who know. Um, and to begin with is some legal jargon, which is blech, boring. But it's actually really, really important to understand how the NFL has got to this point. There's a lot of research you could do about the AFL-NFL merger um, back in the uh, mid-1900s. That's boring. We're past that. But it does kind of affect the way that the CBA or the collective bargaining agreement between the players and the NFL works. And why that's important to know is that in the NFL, more than any other sports league, the players have power, way, way, way more power than I think other leagues do over what gets put in there. And for example, um, the NBA and the MLB, when it comes to domestic violence, have a very specific clause where they say any actual or attempted violent act that is committed by one party in an intimate or family relationship against another party in that relationship. That's how the MLB and the NBA define domestic violence. And they have this whole um, structure and system for if someone's accused of that, you notify the union, you notify the player, you get a medical evaluator out to that person and you make them go through this process and try to see like, what is the psychological state of this person? You know, 
the NFL doesn't have that. The NFL has domestic violence labeled underneath their general umbrella, personal conduct policy. And what that has caused, especially in the 21st century, with the rise of Me Too, um, with, with the rise of um, uh, notice on CTE or um, what's the technical jargon for that? Chronic traumatic encep encephalopathy? <laughs> or CTE, I'm just going to call it CTE, concussions, um, and, and the rise in the awareness that there's a lot of domestic um, violence that happens in the NFL, that the case-by-case -case situation that the NFL has brought upon itself by not having a standardized way of measuring and enforcing policies when it comes to domestic violence has been very, very problematic. Um, some of these cases you may know, some of them you might, might not. I pulled some of the bigger names um, just because I thought that would um, jar, um, jar, uh, jar people's memories a bit more. Um, Antonio Brown got suspended for eight games at the beginning, uh, for the beginning of the 2020 NFL season. He's a whole case study we could go into, but I'm not gonna get into that because he is a dude that I think um, it's like, it needs special treatment outside of this episode. Um, but you also have other cases like Ben Roethlisberger um, in 2010, who was uh, accused of raping a woman in a bathroom. And the details of that are, 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 you can look them up yourself. I don't want to, you know, dramatize them here. But it was one of those cases where that, that has never left Ben Roethlisberger. To this day, you know, fan bases are divided over Ben Roethlisberger. Like if you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, you probably support him for the most part because he's been your due for the past decade. Anyone outside of Pittsburgh does not look favorably on Ben Roethlisberger because of this, um, uh, this case of domestic violence that was never really resolved and handled very poorly by the NFL at that time. Um, at the time, you know, the um, um, woman who was raped, she went to the hospital right away. There was a police, the police in that area of the time had literally just taken photos with Ben Roethlisberger at, at an event, at a social event. And so like the police chief in like had this very, very, very specific bias where he was actually calling Ben Roethlisberger when this woman came in to warn him about what was going to happen beforehand, which violates a lot of rules. But um, during their investigation, the NFL found that he should be suspended for six games. At that time, there was no precedent for the NFL to suspend someone for six games, and his number was reduced to four games. Later that season, um, coincidentally enough, that uh, was the year the Packers won the Super Bowl. They faced Ben Roethlisberger in the Super Bowl in that season. Um, so clearly his suspension didn't matter all that much. They still made, the team still made the Super Bowl. But that was something that was brought up during those two weeks between the Confidence Championships and the Super Bowl. But then you also have more recent examples like Kareem Hunt, who was videotaped in a hotel lobby getting into an altercation with a woman. And we don't know what was said in the video, 
it's kind of one of those things where it doesn't really matter what they said in the video, but that was a big thing that happened. And this is one of those things again, where I think was different about the NFL that might not happen in sports is that we like to try to warp it about like, Oh, was this person justified in any sort of way for committing violence on someone uh, on specifically women there are cases of like um domestic assault um and or just uh, physical assault of um just general public the general public um there's a recent case with the new york giants i want to say cornerback i can't remember his name at the moment that just happened um this previous year um that was pretty um big in the news but in the case of cream hunt um what happened was that there were these very conflicting reports of of him inviting a couple of women to his room. He claims that they lied about their age and that they um, said that they were older than they actually were. He tried to kick them out. When he did, they um, start calling him racial slurs is 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 the story whether or not that actually happened we don't know but what we do have really and that's what kind of ruined Kareem Hunt's season and the reason I say season is because he is playing for the uh Cleveland Browns right now and is one of their star running backs so like his suspension didn't really matter but the video shows him um yelling at this woman fighting off three of his friends who are trying to hold him back to punch this woman, throw her, her against the hallway and then kick her. And it was one of the more visceral videos of, um, of these kind of re- cases revolving domestic violence and, uh, and, and the NFL. Um, the most infamous of which, and, one, and the reason that honestly, this conversation is even, is even taking place here in this podcast or in this country, all comes down to Ray Rice, who in 2014 punched his then girlfriend, then fiance, I apologize, um, in the face so hard that she was knocked out in an elevator. And there's only reason we know this is because it was a security footage of him dragging her out of the elevator, of of the incident in the elevator, and then him dragging her out. and this caused such an uproar that he was essentially blackballed from, by the NFL and by fans alike. No team would sign him. Um, and he is out of the NFL. I think right now, I think, um, I don't know if he's, I don't know where he's coaching. I don't know what he's doing. I think Aiden, you said he's coaching high school. He's a running backs coach for a high school in New Jersey, I believe. Okay. Um, that checks out because I know that in training camp, the Baltimore Ravens, invite him back every year to do this like seminar for the rookies and younger players to say this was my experience and this is what I learned from it and don't be like me essentially and it's kind of like one of those like you really hope that the training seminar really 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 is about be good to each other it just is be good to each other don't commit violence don't treat women disrespectfully don't like think it's okay to like let your emotions get the best of you and lash out with anger and just don't be an angry person (laughs) and not don't get caught because the reason I say that is essentially the NFL has often functioned as in their policy 
of we're going to ignore the problem until we literally cannot anymore. Um, the only reason CTE became a, a thing that people cared about was because fans pushed for it. The only thing that breast cancer awareness became a thing was because fans pushed for it. Um, and, you know, I think, I guess there's no, I guess there's no better way to kind of, I guess, talk about the impact that fans also kind of deserve in this conversation of why the NFL seems to just let the violence of the sport go, as well as the domestic violence outside of the sport go, is in this uh, this player, Andrew Luck. And I'm really hoping, Andrew Luck, if you're listening, please be a stand-up guy like I believe you are. Um, and don't please don't let anything else come out that's going to ruin this. But, you know, as, as growing up, Andrew Luck, when he was playing, he was one of my favorite players to watch um, because he was just so energetic on the field and he was terrific. He was so much fun to watch. The background of this of this dude is that he was a um, Stanford valedictorian as an architectural design major. Um, he was a big nerd. He was known to just like draw doodles of like football stadiums and design football stadiums in his spare time and read history books of like concrete. Like, and that's what he thought was like, that's what he did in his spare time. He didn't watch TV. He didn't really hang out with friends. He read books and drew football stadiums and um, loved history, loved talking about history. And so that's just kind of fun tidbits. But why fans cared about him was because he was supposed to be the heir successor to Peyton Manning for the Indianapolis Colts, drafted number one overall in 2012. And for a few years there, it looked like he was going to be um, that generational talent. He had the most passing yards by a rookie quarterback ever, still hasn't been broken in 2012. He led the league in touchdowns in 2014. He led the Colts to three straight playoff appearances, one of those being um, one of the greatest playoff comebacks of all time against the Kansas City Chiefs, where they were down 38 to 10, and he came back and won that game 45 to 44. Um, the other playoff game the next year, 2015, um, he led them to the AFC Championship. Unfortunately, they lost to the Patriots 45 to 7, I want to say. Um, but like, his whole time that he was with the Colts, it was, you know, with Andrew Luck, we have a shot. Unfortunately, he got injured a lot. And by a lot, I mean a cartoonishly amount of time that he was on the, on the injured list. And we're talking like he had a lacerated kidney. He separated his shoulder. He was gone for the whole 2017 season because of he, of, he tore his uh, labor, I want to say. Um, he broke, he played essentially the whole 2015 season with broken ribs and the Colts hid that <laughs> and then they got in trouble because they were supposed to document that kind of things. Um, the very last moment of him in a football uniform, in the NFL football uniform, was on August 25th, 2019, the fourth and final preseason game of, the, um, of, of that year. Nobody cares about preseason. Not usually, um, except for this one time, because Adam Schefter, and I really hate Adam Schefter for this, and I will never forgive him because he mishandled that. He broke the news that Andrew Luck had just decided to retire at the age of 29 and put projected 
uh, well over $200 million on the table. And he forfeited his $40 million contract for that season. But he very much went to the GM of the Colts before that game started and said, I can't do this anymore. I've just been injured mine too much. And news broke mid-game. And for the rest of that third and fourth, the third and fourth quarters of that game, the only thing the cameras were focused on was Andrew Luck and how heartbroken he looked and how confused the teammates looked and how like just lost everyone was on the field because it was just like one of the most bewildering moments. Like it really had never happened before. Like a fan, uh, this, our star quarterback just retired right before the season is about to start. And the lasting image of Andrew Luck in an NFL uniform are thousands, tens of thousands of fans in Indianapolis, in Lucas Oil Stadium, booing Andrew Luck off the field. And it was just one of the most heartbreaking moments I've ever seen as a fan because the, this, this dude who had given so much of his life and his time and so much of his love to this game and to the city of Indianapolis was sent off with resounding boos. And it was one of the most like blasted moments by like NFL players and other fans alike um, because people said, where's your compassion? <laughs> Essentially, where, where's your heart for Andrew Luck in this moment of decision? The reason I bring up the case of Andrew Luck and I think it's important because too often of the time, I think we don't think about athletes as people and we don't acknowledge as fans that we have a very close relationship to them, even if we don't know them personally. We still affect them. We still affect how they feel about themselves. And we kind of push what and lean on what things we're willing, the NFL world is willing to accept. I understand like as an individual in that moment, you're an uh, Indianapolis Colts fan, and you're really upset, maybe you drafted Andrew Luck number one overall on your fantasy team. Maybe you put a $1,000 bet on the Colts winning the Super Bowl this season. Who knows? It all comes down to economics, it seems. But I guess the larger picture of that moment was that you had tens of thousands of fans at once adhering and acknowledging that player safety as never a priority. What? And when it comes to winning. The reason winning is important to bring up, and I know this is many layers deep and is very convoluted, um, but I think it all wraps down to is we as fans care more about winning than we do about people. The NFL as a business cares more about the fans' money than they do about people. And since the fans' priority is on winning and not on people, the NFL doesn't have to prioritize people as well. And that includes the people who are the family members and the other um, close family friends and neighbors of uh, these athletes and these players. Um, in 2013, the NFL um, was sued by over 4,500 people, um, former players who pretty much came with a lawsuit saying that the NFL had lied um, and given misinformation about 
how dangerous head injuries were and how um, much brain damage playing the sport of football does to someone. And they settled that case for, what was it? $765 million Over 650 million went directly to the players themselves. 75 million went to further medical examination for the players in the future. Only 10 million went into the research of CTE. And again, like, this is one of those things where I think it's connected but it's like you have to, and it feels obvious, but at the same time, I think drawing that connection is important is that the game of football is one that you're gonna be injured a lot. What's interesting about Andrew Luck, who was injured very often for his career, has only one recorded case of concussion in his entire career, which for a player who suffered two torn shoulders, a lacerated kidney, multiple rib fractures, feels like there's something missing there. Troy Aikman is, is one, one of his more unfortunate moments in his career is the fact that he retired because of bad injuries. And it was found that in a scientific study that an independent group was doing on the NFL during the 90s, the, they had required the NFL to provide every single list of recorded documentation of a concussion during the 90s. Troy Aikman was conveniently left off that list, and that was not discovered until after the scientific data was published. And so those, that group then sued the NFL. And I don't know what the results of that case were. I would have to look that up again. But I guess what I'm pointing out is that the NFL has this habit and this tendency to protect themselves and not want to not want to um, do anything that harms their public image. It's a good look to say that you that you support Black Lives Matter. It's a good look to have um, the pink bow for breast cancer breast cancer awareness. It's a good look to paint the touchdown um, touchdown and the end zones. Um, for Gay Pride Month. It's not a good look to focus on the fact that you have had over 92 cases, recorded cases, that you have had to suspend someone for in the past, in the 21st century, regarding domestic violence, including players like uh, Josh Brown, the New York Giants kicker, who we have, and I'm not going to get into his story, because again, like in, in like support of you know, his wife and not getting into her story because it's a very horrific thing that happened. It's one of the more disturbing things that have ever happened in the NFL when it comes to someone's personal life. The summary of it is that the NFL knew what was going on for well over a year. And during that time, they kept on making statements about how they're only as informed as the public is, was, they sent, was the summary of their statements. And what was found out later was that the NFL knew so, like, as knew so far that they personally helped Josh Brown's wife escape a hotel room to get away from them. They knew about a letter that Josh Brown had written that spoke about 
like an intent to murder. It was really disturbing. And the NFL, like if you trace the whole year, and that was something I did for this research was trace the whole year of the public statements the NFL put out about this case. It follows a very specific pattern of trying to protect their image as much as possible. Their statement reads like any statement you could find in any of these domestic violence cases. The NFL said, however, despite multiple attempts to speak with her about this incident and her previous statements, she declined to speak with us. We understand that there are many reasons that might have affected her decision not to speak with us, but we were limited in our ability to investigate these allegations. So what I want victim blames, um, the, the woman in question here, um, whose name again, I'm not gonna say, you can look it up. Um, but Josh Brown and that case was one of the defining examples for me of the past five years, where it was very clear that the NFL knows that there is a rampant problem and they have done nothing to solve it. And the 2020 new CBA, which lasts from 2020 to 2030, um, could have been their chance to hammer out some of these cases and some of these like ways of determining how you're going to inflict punishment and reinforce, and at the very least, give fans a reason to believe that the NFL gives a shit about this very horrific thing that's going on. Um, as of now, I, I found I found nothing to make me believe the NFL is going to change their stance on the matter unless something major happens, either in the fan community or within the internally within the NFL itself. Um, and I guess one more side note to make on all of these is that the 2021 CBA changes also announced that working contracts will increase for all players who outplay them. Players are now getting 48% of the revenue share. So the $113 billion NFL new TV deal between 2023 and 2033, um, where Amazon is paying $1 billion to stream Thursday Night Football ex exclusively, where Disney through the combination of ESPN and ABC are now paying $2.7 billion to to play Super Bowls um, for two of the years in that 10 year span. Um, active rosters are expanding to 55. Playoffs are expanding to 14 teams. Regular seasons games are now 17 games long. There were a lot of things that happened in that CBA that people were very excited about. But when I read through that entire CBA document, all hundred some pages of it, there was nothing on domestic violence. And I can't say there's anything that makes me more sad than to say that. Uh, Aiden, I think, uh, was gonna follow up with, uh, yeah, Aiden, I think you were looking at players who have been accused of domestic violence and have been found guilty of domestic violence and where they are now and what, how that's really affected their lives. Yeah, I wanted to take a look at what happens to the players after these domestic violence incidents. I think Ray Rice is a more prominent case because after he was kind of 
removed from the league. Um, he's never really made an attempt to go back. Um, he's not on social media from the research that I've done. And I think the biggest thing, like we said earlier, was that he is coach, the running backs coach for a New Jersey high school football team. Um, one of the bigger names to have domestic violence in their career was Greg Hardy, who played for the Panthers. He was a defensive end. He was all pro and pro bowl in 2013. That will come into play later. Uh, following the 2014 season, not following the 2013 season, my apologies. He was arrested for assault, assaulting and threatening his ex-girlfriend. He strangled her, he threw her other furniture, he threatened to kill her. Um, he only played one game in 2014. Uh, he was not suspended by the league. He was put on the exempt list and was still able to get paid even though he was not playing football. In 2015, he was given a 10 game suspension following a league investigation. That was later reduced to four for the 2015 season. He was given an 11 million deal by the Dallas Cowboys and he was not very effective that season. I only bring that up because that's the only reason why he's not playing now. Um, when, when researching this, the reason why he was not re-signed by the Cowboys was because he was late to team meetings and was a bad influence on other players. Uh, no one really makes reference to this. Um, and then his cocaine, he was caught with cocaine in Dallas and that really put him out of the league. But I'm more familiar with his post NFL career um he's a mixed martial arts fighter if you listen to the last episode you know that i'm a big mixed martial arts fan um and greg hardy was signed by the ufc following three amateur bouts he made his professional debut on dana white's tuesday night contender series which is promoted as a way to find new talent in the ufc and he was signed a lot just like a lot of other fighters on the roster he was signed from the show I think what I, I don't need to go through all the, the points here. What I'm really getting at is he still has a very prominent career. He's featured on a lot of big fights. Um, he, the, the, one of the more notable incidents was on the, one of the first UFC on ESPN cards, which was a very big deal as they were featured on just normal ESPN. You didn't have to stream it or anything. He was on the same card as domestic violence survivor, Rachel Ostevich. And he was in the co-main event of that card which means he was very heavily promoted. I believe he was on the poster. And he has been wholly embraced by the MMA community. He fights at, he trains at American Top Team, which trains Dustin Poirier, who's one of my favorite fighters. And that, that really stung to hear. Um, he is fighting on UFC 264, which is a Conor McGregor card. Um, if you're fighting on a Conor McGregor card, it means that millions of people are going to watch you fight. Not to mention that we could do a whole episode on Conor as a terrible person in sports. And I, I just felt like I, I had to talk about this because it was just so ridiculous. And initially when he came into the UFC, the discourse was, why, you know, the, this guy's a piece of shit. Why is he, why, why is he fighting now? But now anytime you look at uh, someone talking about Greg Hardy, it's, oh, well, you know, maybe his grappling got better at training camp. And it's like, what well, this is, 
I don't, it's just an absolute loss of humanity. <laughs> the fact that like he did such a terrible thing. The, the pictures are online. Uh, they're horrific of what he did to his ex-girlfriend. And the only reason why he's not in the NFL is he was late to meetings and he's only going to be cut from the USC because he's not a very good fighter. Not to mention, he's already done things that would have gotten any other UFC fighter cut. He committed an illegal knee on that big main roster debut. He illegally used an inhaler in one of his fights, which you are not supposed to do. Um, the UFC has like, cut fighters like Gil Romero just because they want to make more money and they just don't want to pay them, so they just let them go. But Greg Hardy still has a roster spot. I don't really know what else to say about it, but... I found that like he was one of the only people who still does have some sort of platform. He was actually featured on that Shaq reality show as like an MMA representative, which is awful in every way. And I don't, like I said, I don't really know what else to say about it. Um, it's just really horrifying. And I think it represents the reality that this doesn't really affect these guys, you know, Kareem Hunt's still in the NFL and Greg Hardy would be too, if he was still good at football, but now he's just doing something else. So, yeah, it's, you can find, yeah. And I, I don't know how much I wanted to bring that up, but you can find the police photos of the, of his ex-girlfriend right after that evening and what he did to her. And they're really hard to look at, but, you know, for me, when I was, doing that research about Greg Hardy and looking at it, I guess, you know, I had to take it from the perspective of sometimes to fully understand the scope and the danger that, you know, that presents itself without acknowledging and, and trying to address the problems of it, you, you, you're not going to really understand. And I don't really still understand. I mean, I did research for two weeks and I think I understand exactly what that means. Hell no. But, you know, it's, it's given me moving forward a lot more to think about I guess I'll say about what it means to be a fan of the NFL and things that I would want to see better you know on on Greg Hardy's case um the reason his suspension was lowered from 10 to 4 was because the private like mod I don't, is, the word is not moderator but the person who was deciding that basically said there was no established precedent to suspend someone for 10 games so therefore we're only going to re we're going to reduce it out to four the precedent for that was ben roethlisberger having his suspension reduced from six games to four and so there's a whole list of players you could look up i mean a ricky page is, is sufficient where you just kind of scroll through it and every single one is like suspended for four games reduced to one, suspended for six games, reduced to four. And it's kind of like, how many chances do these people get? And you look at their comments that came out of Greg Hardy, you look at the comments that came out of Ray Rice, and you look at the comments that came out of Ben Roethlisberger or Kareem Hunt or any fill in the blank. And so much of the time, I and again, like, it's a, it's, it's something that locker rooms need to clean up i'm not in the locker room i will probably never have access to a locker room so i don't know how that to go about doing that but i was seeing a post the other day that was really sardonic but i thought spoke a lot of truth to power when they said something along the lines of 
people, straight white men don't understand how much power they have by just telling other straight white men that they're being a jerk. <laughs> and I feel like this holds true maybe for the NFL because when you read the comments of like the players who talk about like what their teammate did, it's often like, but they're such a great player. They put so much effort out on the field. They, they're such a great locker room presence. They, they, you know that they're always going to take every opportunity they can. And it's like, that's great. But at some point, if someone's toxic and someone is, you know, you know, is harming pe- people on the world, at what point do you as a person say this is enough? And I guess maybe that's a segue into what Kat is going to talk about when it comes to what this means socially and maybe what some of the things we can take away um, from that perspective are. Yeah, I think all of what you're saying is really indicative of one of the reasons why I personally have never felt welcome in football or even really liked football as a sport. Um, And it wasn't really until recently when I became good friends and colleagues with a former D1 football player uh, and became friends with some female football players that I actually started to pay a little bit more attention to football as a sport. And I think that in general just shows how important visibility in culture is in sports um, and how it relates to fans. Um, And kind of through my friendships and working relationships, it's given me the opportunity to have some really productive conversations around hyper-masculinity and sexism in football culture with people who are in that sport and have been in that industry. Um, Football has a long history of systemic violence ingrained within certain aspects of the sports culture. And I think it's our responsibility as sports fans and consumers to address it, right? What we're talking about today isn't a situation that really allows for a gray area, right? It's bad, (laughs) kind of, you know what I mean? And the more that we talk around and ignore domestic violence and assault against women in the NFL, the bigger disservice we're doing to ourselves the future of the sport and the culture of football, Um, right? Like the NFL is a league where straight maleness is the majority, right? And where power struggles, (laughs) totally, right? Uh, And where power struggles concerning misogyny and racism and homophobia are replicated in the dressing rooms and in trickle down spots in the sport itself. Uh, the NFL's experiences with instances of physical abuse and assault, handling of racist behavior, relationships with female fans and women's football, representations of women, all of these things designate this relationship. And there isn't a precedent nor consistency in how the league treats players who have engaged in violent and abusive and disrespectful behavior and kind of everything and all of the examples that Aiden and Ben have laid out for us, it all kind of culminates into that. And there's some measure of a safety net for players, um, you know, and once they don't experience repercussions or consequences for the behavior the first time, the more they're going to keep doing it. And, And with all of these players and examples, right, these are patterns of behavior, these are associations. It's not like they do this for the first time and are suddenly caught, right? This is a repeated experience. Um, And so the more that they don't feel those sorts of repercussions, the more they feel a sense of entitlement and invincibility in their actions. The NFL has a storied past of protecting powerful players from the consequences of their actions, 
to make more money and, and preserve the power structure of their league. And, and we can really see that today in all of what we've just been talking about. Um, and we can see that there's a double standard and lack of consistency in how the NFL addresses violence against women from the players. And we can see that in how the responsibility rests on the survivors to prove themselves beyond a shadow of a doubt rather than anything else making the NFL address instances of sexual assault and abuse. And when they do address them, obviously, uh, it's generally not well. Um, and so kind of all relating to this, there's a few things that I want to highlight. The first is that, um, the first is a 2014 study by Benjamin Morris of 538. And he found that the rate of domestic violence arrests in the NFL relative to other violent crimes was 48%. And that number is more than double the national rate of 21%. That's big, that's a big number. The second is that in 2016, the NFL banned players with convictions for domestic violence, sexual assault and weapons offenses from attending the scouting combine. There's a couple of really interesting things with this. The first is when I think this ban first was announced, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, the NFL is like finally kind of addressing this pattern of behavior we see from them. They're banning players with convictions. The keyword is convictions. It's not allegations. They must have a police report like conviction. A lot of players don't because, I mean, obviously that rests on survivors of making that, uh, you know, pursuing that avenue. That is a lot to ask of people. That is extremely traumatic. Convictions are not always going to happen for a lot of different reasons. The other thing about that is that just because a player does have a conviction of that sort, it doesn't mean that they can't make it to the NFL. They're still allowed to attend private training and things like that. And so there have been players who have kind of circumvented this ban and found a loophole um, and been able to enter the NFL in that way. Uh, and what's interesting to me overall about this 2016 ban is the fact that this rule is in place at all. And I feel like that's maybe not something we talk about the fact that there is this rule and the fact that people um, you know, clearly apply to it shows that there is a level of regularity that players in the NFL sphere that this applies to, right? This rule came out of um, you know, a pattern of behavior and experiences that the NFL is saying, okay, we have this problem, let's put a Band-Aid on it. So there's all of that. The third and final thing that I wanna to touch on is a little bit about the culture of violence against women and where it starts, because it's not just when players reach the NFL that they um, enact these behaviors, right? And if we wanna look at a specific example of what that might look like, we can see it in the way football is treated in the NCAA, right? Football is extremely profitable for universities and they generate a huge amount of revenue for the school. And the players like obviously play a significant role in that financial gain and as such often enjoy a level of protection from the school, right? They are an asset, they are a business tool. The schools want to preserve that as much as possible. So got a bunch of numbers to throw at you again. 
According to a survey conducted by the Association of American Universities, one out of five women on college campuses will be raped. That's an alarming rate. And it relates, unfortunately, to sports and to football by extension more than you'd think. Um, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research on football game days, the rate of rape on campuses can go up by as much as 28%. According to a study conducted by sociologist and criminologist Laura Finley, athletes who play certain sports are disproportionately represented among the perpetuators of rape, attempted rape and assault, namely, quote, from Laura Finley, power in performance sports. So things such as football, wrestling, boxing, and even hockey. So obviously, right, obviously, not every athlete or football player is going to commit violence against women, right? But we have to acknowledge the sociocultural nuances of the conversation and how we view football and how we view and treat football players on all levels of the organization and industry in order to really address how football has gained this reputation, right? And this is all very surface level. This is a discussion that we could spend, I mean, hours, days talking about, right? This is very much the tip of the iceberg, but it's important that we talk about it. And something that we kept saying when discussing this um, is how disheartening this conversation is, um, especially for female football fans and, um, you know, female sports fans and female football athletes, right? Um, you know, but, and I, and I really believe this, the more that we talk about systemic violence against women in the NFL, the more we address this culture and experience, the better we can dismantle this culture and this association that the NFL has, right? As consumers, as fans, we have a huge amount of power in dictating our sports culture. Right. We can have productive and inclusive discussions about the existence and perpetuation of systemic violence in our sports culture. We can refuse to buy merch or jerseys of players. We can refuse to engage with athletes on social media. We can hold athletes and organizations and leagues accountable for their actions, right? This conversation doesn't end here. And by here, I mean the podcast space, but also within our own friends and families and communities where we can change football culture to be better. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, I started speaking before I had a fully formed thought. <laughs> this is a um, hard one. This, this, is, yeah. this is a difficult conversation to just both go off the cuff because it requires a lot of yeah. um, tact, I think, but also it's a really heavy conversation. And so it, it is emotionally draining, I think, for yeah. both us and our listeners to yeah. engage with sometimes. I would say what really stuck out with the points you made, Kat, is, you know, we go to art school there's not a lot of sports fans here, let's be honest. Um, so, you know, I've, I'm a big sports fan. So I'm always telling my friends like, oh, you know, I'm watching this game or I'm watching this, you know, you wanna come watch, like whatever, cool. And they take me up. Um, mixed martial arts actually more than you think, which is interesting. Oh, interesting. Um, people like to watch a fight. Um, 
I will say the sport that everyone has a strong opinion on is football. Like I have people be like, I just, you could, I'm not watching football. You could do whatever I'm not. And it's always because there's been some bad experience and it's mostly cultural. You know, it's not that they're like, oh, it's boring. It's like, I don't know. I don't like the culture. It was football in my town. I didn't like it. It was bad. It was bad vibes. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. And I think that really sticks out. And I think that's the reason why I don't watch football anymore is it's like, you know, if you're watching something and someone's like, oh, that guy's really good. It's like, yeah, he's a piece of shit, by the way. Like, why am I watching this? And I mean, that's kind of, unfortunately, that's a lot of sports. I mean, most of the sports I watch have someone in it that's a piece of shit, but I feel like football, it's like a lot more frequent like we're talking about there is not a rule in baseball that says specifically targets people with domestic violence charges against them because it's not as big of an issue it is an issue but it is not as big of one yeah it's something like i think everyone has maybe it's just an american experience of like being in high school and being like yeah, we know the athletes are getting preferential treatment. And a lot of times those are, those are the football teams because like that's usually where a high school puts their money in if they're going to have an athletics, a team sport. You know what I mean? Um, because unlike the rest of the world, we don't give a shit about soccer. <laughs> um, so, and, and I guess, yeah, you know, I was thinking about Joshua Perry, like when you were bringing that up, Aiden because um, Joshua Perry was a linebacker who retired from the NFL at the age of 24 after having a sixth documented um, concussion. And and it's kind of like coming out this slant, but it is kind of related to kind of like the social pressure of what what are we willing to allow even among kids? He's played football since he was nine. And he talked about in an interview where he talked about why he retired. And he talked about how he knows he probably has had in the, like in the teens when it comes to number of concussions, just that there's just this mentality of you don't take care of yourself. You don't take care of your body. You only take care of your play out in the field. So you get your bell rung and you go back to the sideline, drink a bottle of water and you go back out there. And there's no doctors on, on site at a little league high school or a little league or a high school game regulating that. There's nobody like, no one out in the stands is looking out for you and can there's not a big screen monitor at a high school stadium maybe there is where your high school was definitely not mine <laughs> but there's no big screen where the uh showing replay where the family member can go holy shit i think my son just got clocked like there it's just like up to the individuals on the field and the time in question to regulate themselves and i guess the reason i bring it up is because i think societally we're running into this like issue with football where if we're not willing to regulate self-regulate right when it comes down to the middle school level when it comes to the high school level of principals of the school board of the teachers of the high school coach saying this is what is acceptable in my locker room among teenagers still trying to figure out what their habits are building those habits like you brought up cat about how like these actions aren't one-time things they're things that are ingrained in the way that they've lived and have been taught to live it's it's kind of like what are we what are, what are we doing societally to change what has become the norm in football culture and you know it's 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 a it's a hard topic to discuss because you know we can't 
Um, <laughs> uh, we're not going to be able to solve that um, in the, in this session, but I think raising awareness of it and talking about it and hopefully getting other people to talk about it means that, you know, slowly things start to happen. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And this is one of the reasons why we're here is to talk about it. Um, and again, you know, the more that we do discuss these issues, the better we can dismantle them. And just, you know, our communities, there's a lot of power we have just in the relationships with each other. And so having these conversations with fellow football fans um, is a lot more powerful than I think we think. You know, with things like this, it can make us feel really powerless. Sometimes it can make fans think, oh, this is such a big issue. And, it, you know, the league is terrible and whatever. And yeah, the league needs to step up. And there's a lot of organizational structures um, where they could um, and should. <laughs> you know, really make changes in their culture and how they address these problems and how they treat and, um, you know, address instances and players' decisions. But a lot of it, again, really does come from us. And so as we kind of close this episode out, I guess the one thing that I think we can leave you all with, with certainty, is that um, don't stop talking about the big picture problems in your community because just by discussing them with your friends, your family, your neighbor, whoever, the more that we can address those problems and hopefully at some point not have to deal with them anymore. Yeah. And um, for all the art students out there who are, who are in that weird Venn diagram of being at art school, loving sports, that middle section, um, go out there and make art about this. You know what I mean? If there's something that bothers you like this, do something about it. You know what? I would love to see a screenplay, a film of just really chill, wholesome football dudes on it. Like that, and that's it. That's my pitch to someone. Just write a script on that because we don't have that. I love Sean Astin and Rudy, but it could still be a little bit more wholesome of a film. <laughs> um, so thank you for listening. This was Out of Bounds, episode five, brought to you by F News Magazine. Uh, one last time, I'm Ben. Kim Papleham. I'm, I'm Catherine. Oh, Aiden. I'm Aiden again. My bad. I'm, I'm bad at uh, timing in person, but I'm even worse in Zoom. So. The order. The order. The order must be maintained. The order. No, Nick. Can we go back? Oh, backwards? Can we go back? Can we go backwards? Aiden, lead us off. I'm Aiden. I'm Catherine. Before we go, a special thank you to Eleven <laughs> AI for the use of their song Blur from their album Q Title. You can download that song and more on Spotify under the name Eleven AI. And a second thank you to Jay Cheng for the use of her artwork for this podcast. You can find her artwork on her website and Instagram, Jay Cheng. Thank you. <laughs>